Hi everyone, I'm Phil Preston and welcome to The Purpose Edge, where we explore the work and lives of our guests and the role purpose plays for them. And at the end, as usual, I'll add a couple of extra thoughts about our conversation. And my guest today is a Canadian working in an industry that sometimes attracts a bit of controversy. And in fact, he's just moved from Canada to Australia to take up a new role with a new company, a company in Australia that I guess has attracted a little bit of controversy as well. And uh, his role is to help it improve its approach to diversity, equity, and inclusion. His name is Peter Toim. Welcome to the show, Peter. Hello, Bill. Thanks for having me on. Pleasure. And I, I want to very touch briefly on, on what your role is in the industry you're in. And we'll um, we'll do that briefly first up, and then we'll come back to it later. So, so yeah, how do you describe what you do and who you do it for? Well, I'm working for an organization based in Sydney that has um, hotels, casinos, uh, performing arts centers, and restaurants all across um, Queensland and New South Wales. I'm uh, currently responsible for safer gambling, but in that role, um, a large part of what I touch also is around ESG, diversity, and inclusion. And in fact, I just finished attending a diversity inclusion meeting on my way to this uh, podcast recording. So I take a very broad approach. Um, I've been brought into the organization with that kind of change uh, and cultural dimension associated with the work that I do. Great. And so it's therefore broader than what I was describing. So apologies for that. And for listeners who aren't up on ESG, environmental, social and governance factors, so clearly a huge issue for that industry where you've got gambling and entertainment and, and property. So um, just briefly before we start going back in into your life and career a little bit, how would you frame that in terms of, you know, where's your key focus when you're dealing with ESG or diversity, equity, inclusion in your industry that you're in? Well, I, I would say it's in a number of ways. I mean, first of all, it's uh, it starts with harm minimization. So making sure that people have an environment where they are able to practice and experience entertainment in a way that's right for them, but also uh, in a way that's representative of the culture and the uh, identity that they have as a person. So I'm very sensitive to that myself um, because I, uh, I'm, I'm a gay man and I have a child who has some disabilities and identifies as trans and so on. So I um, tend to bring a pretty intersectional approach and I'm very sensitive to that. So making sure that I'm playing a role in creating an environment where everybody feels welcome and can be their, their true and authentic selves is a really important part of what I'm here to do. Right. And so let's uh, just go back in time a little bit. Where did you grow up? Well, I have a very checkered past, but my <laughs> um, my uh, parents are Dutch immigrants to Canada, and I grew up uh, a portion of my life in Quebec and then a portion of my life in Ontario. And then I moved to the West Coast uh, in British Columbia, spent a fair bit of time there, went to the uh, you know Netherlands for a little while, went to India for five years and lived there and worked a lot around corporate social responsibility and uh, ESG issues as we talked about. And then back in Canada and now in Australia. So I speak three languages. I've been in different environments. I kind of view myself as a bit of a citizen of the world, I guess, for lack of a better word. Well, my challenge is always to differentiate a Canadian accent from an American one. 
and and your <laughs> your current challenge is being able to differentiate a New Zealand accent from an Australian one. How you how are you going with that? Um, I'm starting to pick up the differences, and I always ask if I'm not sure. I always ask, "Are you a Kiwi?" And then you don't tend to piss off the Australians when you ask that question. <laughs> and the Kiwis are very impressed that you might have guessed that they're Kiwi. So. I would give that piece of advice also to people, to your listeners, always ask, are you Canadian? And then, uh, you know, an American isn't offended and a Canadian is very chuffed that you've, uh, you know, think, uh, identify them as Canadian. <laughs> that's great advice because I'm sure I've made that mistake in the past and, uh, <laughs> and you know about it when you, when you make it. Um, oh, you do. So, so that's some pretty different environments here. Canada, Netherlands, India, and, and now Australia, but when you're growing up, you've had very different environments there. Um, what were your parents like in terms of role models or the type of work they did? Well, you know, my parents uh, grew up in the war. So, you know, they were, they very much experienced uh, a lot of the upheaval that was associated with that. A lot of the injustice of war, uh, the Holocaust, you know, these were things that were very present in their lives, especially in the life of my mother who lived in Western Netherlands. So when they came to Canada, you know, that with that as backdrop, they were as immigrants also wanting to kind of, you know, contribute to the country. And so they were very much community focused, always trying to get involved in different things. And they instilled those values into their children. Um, that was an important part of life. So whether it was getting involved in, you know, with my dad was, you know, a Cub Scout leader and my mother was involved in the Cancer Society and both of them were involved in the church uh, where they went at the time and so on. So, you know, they were very much modeling that kind of contribution and um, not necessarily to get something out of it but just to contribute to it. And I think that's a large, uh, that's formed uh, a large part of who I am and influenced my brother and sister as well to be people who are always trying to make the world better in our own little way um, and and trying to contribute more than we're taking back. It's certainly a common theme with people I've had on this program. I know several references have been made been made back to very similar dynamics so that's interesting um and i just want to touch briefly because you, you mentioned the parents lived through the war it, it's a pretty interesting time right now because it's almost like we're seeing a shift back um to or democracy is becoming more authoritarian right now um does that you know that trend cause you much concern it absolutely does. Um, and, you know, we're seeing less tolerance, I would say, um, in a lot of different quarters. Having come from North America, you know, we say in Canada, it's like living above a meth lab, uh, that right. meth lab being America. Yeah. Um, you know, there are culture wars, there's a lot of virtue signaling, there's, you know, uh, things that are wedge issues that are being driven, whether it's trans rights or LGBTQ rights or gun ownership or what have you. And we're seeing that, you know, in other countries of the world, we're seeing the way that Putin behaves. We're seeing the rise of a Hindu fundamentalist class or approach in India. We're seeing uh, some of the actions that happened in Brazil under Bolsonaro and on and on. I hate to say it, but it's mostly men. Um, that are doing this, these kind of strong men who think that somehow this is going to, you know, engender 
uh, results for them. Although, you know, we also see it with female leaders in a place like Italy, where a more right-wing leader, uh, the Marine Le Pen, who is more of the ultra-right in France, also is cut of that cloth. I, I'm, I'm concerned that we're seeing that division. And I see, I've seen that in Canada. I've seen that in other realms as well, where the, you know, the middle is eroding and we're seeing that even in income inequality right the rich getting richer the poor getting poorer so um we see that in the world itself with rich countries getting richer and continuing to exploit poor countries so i don't think we're learning from that experience and finding that that you know means to kind of bridge those gaps between rich and poor or between left and right and though that cleavage is continuing and i don't think that's serving us well i mean i just saw that this week where the canadian government was saying that they weren't going to support um fossil fuel uh projects where there wasn't going to be some form of carbon mitigation and the pro the premier of the province of alberta was attacking the prime minister and saying that he was anti-development and anti-growth and anti-alberta you know that's not helpful. I mean, the reality is we are facing a climate crisis and we have to find solutions. And uh, that kind of, you know, just picking sides and then driving a wedge into it is is not the, the way forward, I think. Yeah, certainly challenging. And I don't know what it's like in Canada, but you, you mentioned the middle eroding. And I think that's certainly something we see in the US and, and maybe Canada. And I remember years ago getting a bus from Boston to Rhode Island and just along the way we passed through a couple of towns that were, were like closed down they're empty and uh you could see they were maybe once manufacturing towns and they were like absolutely ghost towns now um do you get that same sort of thing in Canada or is, is it quite a different atmosphere well you know we've started to see that hollowing out for sure I mean you know you call it the rest belt in the United States many jobs have gone overseas and and, and in part, that's also a logical development of an economy, right? You move from a manufacturing economy to a services economy, and you know we are we're allowing other companies or countries rather to develop and to use their. You know, you you look at the rise of China uh, and its manufacturing class. That's that's appropriate in many ways. Um, but you have to just replace as long as you're replacing those jobs with something else and what we've seen though is the rise of the gig economy for example where we have employer employees that don't have the protections and the, and 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 the kind of security that comes with having a full-time job they don't get pension pension contributions they don't get a, a benefits program and you know the underbelly of that was revealed i think really during covid where you know it was the frontline workers that were expected to continue to deliver you your food while you could be at home uh working from home in your white collar job right mm -hmm. and that really did underscore i think some of this division so it exists i think in many countries of the world in many developed countries um I think Australia is doing, quite frankly, a pretty good job. I mean, yes, there's you know there's poverty in this country, of course, but there's a high minimum wage. I was reading today. There's a, there's a website called Quora, which perhaps some of your listeners know, and it was somebody from America asking a question: Why should I move to Australia? 
And a, a lot of the responses that people were giving were given were, well, you know, if you don't want to spend your uh, significant part of your income on uh, healthcare, if you want to own your, if you don't want to own your own own gun, if you this and that, it was it was kind of like a backhanded way of supporting all of the things that are very well developed in Australia. You know, there's a high quality of living. There's a high uh, belief in um, looking after people in this country and in doing the right thing and not necessarily following into a lot of this um, virtue signaling and culture wars that we've talked about. Australia is not perfect, but I think it's doing a pretty good job compared to a number of other countries around the world in trying to maintain some kind of cohesion uh, uh, amongst people. And I think that's really uh, important. Mm. I think you've hit the nail on the head. And we had some, we've had some politicians who've tried to take us a little bit down that path. And I think they found that, uh, you know, they, they came up against barriers there, which was heartening. And you look at, say, the US and you you think, how, how can such a large percentage of the population lose their mind? Um, we could go yeah. a million directions here, Peter, and I'm I'm actually dragging you off the topic of where I should be. Um, coming back to to social issues and challenges, what what were what was a key social issue that sort of sparked your interest in the the field that you've ended up working in? Well, you know, it really started around apartheid, um, and that was in, for me in in the kind of eighties before countries started to formally boycott products. You know, there were there was informal boycotts that people uh, started to institute themselves and and churches and faith based organizations and social justice groups and others started to do that. And, you know, um, I was not a supporter of apartheid. And so I would start to read labels and then um, around where did that product come from? You know, mostly food because South Africa didn't manufacture a lot of products that were exported, lots of wine and lots of food. Um, so I read that and then I, I got interested in labels and and reading like what were the, some of the ingredients in these products, just generally not South African, but you know, cause you read every label to figure out where it comes from. And then I was like, I can't even pronounce half some of this stuff. Why am I putting it into my body? So I got really interested in organic food too. So, uh, and, and, and the provenance of food. So those two issues, both social justice and food, then kind of got me on my journey. And then I went to business school and I uh, did an MBA and had the option of, uh, of course, um, finding a specialization. And I chose to specialize in environmental issues because this was the early 90s it was af just after the Brentman commission into sustainable development um climate change issues started to get you know some traction even though 30 years later we haven't done nearly enough around them uh, around those issues but um that kind of got me down a path of wanting to get involved in those sorts of issues of, uh, you know, finding that intersection between business and environment. And then that led into, well, if I'm going to be focused on the environment, I should also be thinking, and I was, you know, previously interested in social justice issues. Let's bring all of that together. And then I, I got more and more involved in um, ESG and, and corporate social responsibility related projects. And I combined my background in his and, uh, communications and marketing with those realms 
and really built a career uh, around that, both as a consultant and working for a number of companies now. So you were in the MBA world and the environmental part of that um, that discipline early on. Um, today, I hear a lot of people saying, I'm a recovering MBA. And <laughs> uh, for different reasons, the, the new, I think uh, they're, they're referring to, I guess, a very profit-driven mindset that was uh, probably instilled in them. How do you see the, I guess, that transformation or or change in, in MBA courses? Has it changed or is it pretty much the same overall? No, I think there's been some some development. I mean, you know, when I did an MBA, I specialized in environmental management, rather, and it was one of the first programs like that. And then slowly you started to see more and more MBA schools integrate sustainability issues, um, and increasingly you're seeing corporate purpose in, in, incorporated into some of those. I don't think, to be honest, that there's been enough movement. Um, if you go and you follow some of those courses, for example, I worked for one of the largest Canadian retail cooperatives for five years. I was very involved in the credit union movement, which is also a form of financial cooperative. You didn't learn, and you still don't learn, a lot about that business model, even though it's a very powerful business model and it's one that's very accountable and representative you know uh, of its uh, membership for the most part and um, you know as just an interesting sidebar I went to northern Italy as part of uh, at, at that time when I was working for both the retail cooperative and sitting on a board of the financial cooperative and we in northern Italy in Emilia Romagna where Bologna is one-third of the economy is is driven by cooperatives and so you don't really learn about that in business school, right? And um, I'm also involved in an initiative in Canada still to this day, even though I'm in Australia, to help foster a purpose-driven economy. And we're trying to bring this more and more to business schools. There are some business schools that do uh, incorporate this kind of content into their um, uh, curriculum, but there are still many that are very traditional and you know, uh, I think they're doing a disservice because you look at the rise of B corporations, you look at the rise of uh, cooperatives, of um, the need to be more aligned with stakeholder capitalism principles and so on. And business schools don't teach enough of that. And I think they need to do more. In fact, your credit unions in Canada have pretty big market shares in some respects. I think it's a very different landscape to what we have here with our big four banks. Well, in British British Columbia is quite unique in Canada, British Columbia and Quebec. So Quebec has a large network called Desjardins of uh, credit unions. It's They're all individually owned, but under one banner called Desjardins. And it's one of the largest uh, financial institutions in the province. And that, as a result of that, invests a lot in the province. And in British Columbia, in Vancouver, there are probably four or five major credit unions, the two largest each have about 500,000 members in the city of two and a half million people. That's mm. the two largest alone. The next yeah. couple have about, uh, between them about another six, 700,000 members. So almost about 60, 70% of the population belongs you know, to a financial cooperative or credit union. They might have another bank as well, in addition, and they divide their money between the two or however they want to do it. But 
they, they, they play a very important role and they have different drivers, right? And they tend to invest more in their communities. They tend to be more responsive to the needs of their members who own them, who own shares in them. And uh, as a result of that, you see them make different decisions. And um, it's been very, very influential in the way that economic and social development has occurred as a result of that. Mm. And a real, I guess, guiding light in a way, because we're going into an environment now where you've got to be making a net positive impact in society to, in order to generate profits. If you're a for-profit company, that the model that you just make money and give a bit back seems to be um, seems to be coming to an end. And I guess those credit unions, they're, they're leading the way because they've been very much focused on social impacts all of their lives. So they, they have a head start, just access to capital is, is a little bit more limited, I guess. For sure. I mean, the, you know, there's that phil- that philanthropy model, which so many countries or companies rather are stuck in. Uh, and then you went beyond that with companies starting to think more about, well, what's our contribution beyond that to the community? And then you got, you know, companies that were looking at more of that strategic approach. How do we build value in the organization by aligning and, and looking at some of the social issues that we need to be a part of the solution, not a part of the problem too. And now you're seeing purpose-driven organizations that are really saying, we need to put a social purpose at the top of why we exist. And so um, there aren't enough companies at that one end of the continuum, but at least we're starting to see more movement in that direction. Mm. And I guess to finish off the, this environmental theme that we started on with your MBA, uh, we've we've talked about this offline about China and India, and and I know you're you're sort of looking at those developments and thinking, well, yeah, well, I mean, listen, the reality is we have created an expectation that uh, you know we all can have a house with a picket fence and a car and go and be flying an airplane and go to all these places around the world. Um, and so these uh, countries are wanting to emulate that, and that makes total sense. Um, because you know, far be it from us, as many of these many of the countries that have this uh, high standard of living are also colonial countries. It's a very colonial attitude to say, "Oh no, you can't have what we're having." Uh, we run out of resources. That said, you know, we also have to model a better way of working within the limits that exist on the planet. And if you look at where here we are in 2023, you look at some of the climate impacts right now, we've had the warmest week ever uh, over the last little while in in the world. You know, there's challenges with the ice caps melting, with the oceans warming, with biodiversity issues and so on, um, we have to figure this out and we have to figure this out pretty quickly. We, we in no way can deny the rest of the world, you know, their desire to improve their quality of life and the um, amenities that are a part of that. But we can't keep doing it the same way that we've been doing it because it's a very unsustainable approach. So mm-hmm. it's incumbent upon us to help countries like china india and the rest of the developing world figure this stuff out because otherwise you know there's only one planet and we're rapidly rapidly you know pushing it to the edge i was looking at some figures the other day i don't have them in front of me but in 
there was two things that caught my mind. This was the uh, materials intensity of our lives is increasing. So uh, I think over 27 years from 1990 to 2017, the amount of uh, billions of tons of things coming out of the ground to support us um, in what we do and live our lives had more than doubled. And also energy intensity per capita is rising. So uh, yeah, that, that probably un underscores when you have rising um, lower class or middle class, there's there's going to be uh, that greater uh, material uptake and energy intensity behind what we, we have. And uh, apparently just our, our smartphones, we have, um, have an enormous footprint once we uh, track them back to the resources and energy that goes into them. Absolutely. absolutely. Not to mention all the social dimension the, uh, associated with these products, right, um, in terms of even what social media and notifications and are this, and, you know, you tell somebody, somebody tells you that they lost their phone and it's like they've lost a limb, right? I mean, our entire life is now wrapped up in this small device in our hand or in our pocket. And uh, and it comes with a whole lot of impacts as well around child labor that's involved in many of the precious metals used to make these products, the disposableness of them. I mean, there's a whole bunch of issues that uh, we probably don't have enough time to talk no, about. We don't. So I want to come now to your your current industry and and role. Though you've had pretty similar roles in what you're doing in Canada to what you're doing now, I, I think broadly speaking, um, when you walk into a a company or a new environment and you're looking at environmental and social factors, you're looking at diversity, equity, and inclusion, and, and probably a a lot more. Where do you start? Where do you start? Well, that you know, it's always good to get a baseline and figure out. Well, where is that organization today? I mean, I've done a lot of work over the years to identify what are some of the leading practices. So you're always trying to do a little bit of a baseline of where you are and, and what's important um, in with the business that you're in. And I think it's important to remember that, you know, no single business can solve all the problems of the world. And the material issues, we talk about that a lot in uh, ESG or sustainability, this notion of, quote, materiality, i.e., what are the issues that you have the most influence in uh, you know, or on the community and in return are also more most important to your stakeholders? I think it's really important to use that lens to decide, you know, where should you be placing your focus? And it's not just making the bad less bad, but it's also how can we use our resources for good? How can we be more representative? How can we drive certain conversations or certain initiatives or uh, what have you in society? So that's kind of where I usually start in some of these, in some of this analysis and conversation. And then, you know, I think the real struggle that a lot of organizations have is keeping the focus and keeping the commitment to the focus. Mm -hmm. um, because, you know, many times we'll have different issues confront us around financial issues or uh, economic slowdown. And you can see what happened with COVID, for example, or other broader recessions, interest rate rises, inflation, you name it. And then sometimes these issues 
take more and more, you know, more of a back seat. Mm. Um, and, you know, that makes some sense. But for the same token, you just can't go totally dark on these things because then you lose all the progress that you've made up to date. So it's important to keep some momentum behind it. Well, what would be the top? You mentioned gaming or, or gambling harms earlier on. Uh, what would be what else would be in the top three or five issues that would would be front of mind for for companies like yours? Oh well, I mean it's everything from the um, supply chain uh, and uh, you know, for example, Australia has a, a, a new laws, relatively new laws and commitments to modern slavery, for example. It can be um, issues around. Um, you know, energy intensity and also and water use. It it really depends on kind of the nature of your business and where you are. But you know, diversity and inclusion is a big issue today. Um, making sure that you're reflective of the communities that you live in. And when I talk about diversity and inclusion, I mean that not just gender, but also neurodiversity, ethnic, um, age. Um, making sure that you're bringing uh, a voice to the the voiceless, uh, ensuring that you're having uh, a connection to those who come from um, Indigenous communities, you know, Aboriginals and Torres Strait Islanders here in Australia, for example, and so on and so on. So, uh, you know, these are some of the material issues that that, that I tend to focus on in the work that I'm doing and, and making sure that we're making progress um, in that regard. So give some insights into maintaining that commitment. So from what you said, you identify what's best practice. You, you try and figure out where you are relative to best practice and that I'm guessing forms your, your plan of action or you, you figure out how, ma- how many resources you've got to put where. Um, but in terms of from the high level so that it doesn't get swept under the carpet in the next, uh, if there's an economic downturn, how do management structures deal with with that issue? Um, well, some of it is is embedding this commitment right into the organization. So you know, making sure that it's part of the strategy, um, and so that it doesn't just go away. It's not just viewed as a cost. Also, you know, it it you view what are the benefits associated with it. So you think of as an example, diversity and inclusion, um, you know, organizations that that are more diverse, that bring more voices to the table, that are more representative of its of their constituencies, make better better decisions, and are more relevant to a broader array of uh, people. So, there's a strong business case for, for example, diversity and inclusion. When you look at different, uh, when you look at your supply chain organizations that focus on their supply chain and ensuring that their supply chain has integrity and um, they've taken a risk-based approach also to the way that they set up their uh, supply chain makes, you know, uh, increases the likelihood that supply chain is going to have the resilience that's needed when certain events occur, be they natural disasters or a global pandemic or what have you. So um, it's it's about really embedding it in the strategy and viewing these things as additive, not just as a cost. Is there cost with some of these things? Of course there is, but there's a cost. There's costs all across an organization. It's about 
determining where does it make the most sense to invest to ensure the long-term sustainability of the organization. And um, that, I think, is an important principle to ensuring uh, that the organization, any organization, is going to be um, sustainable and relevant over the long term. I think you've painted a really nice picture there in that in the past, a lot of the issues we're discussing have been thought of as being very peripheral to business or we will throw a few dollars at them if we have if we have them spare. But what you're talking is is they're coming into the core of strategy and business planning, which uh, which is quite encouraging because it's not just your the firms you're working for doing this. It is a bit of a trend, but we've got a long way to go. We do have a long way to go. I, you know, I continue to be an optimist and uh, hopeful that we're going to see even increased momentum. I do think that some of the challenges facing the world today, the climate crisis, which is intensifying at a rate that even is uh, bewildering some of the scientists that have been working on the science for a while, together with some of the challenges of biodiversity and so on, we like to think as humans that we are somehow separate from the environment that we live in, and we're not. Mm. You know, spoiler alert, folks. (laughs) Spoiler (laughs) alert, folks. We're not. You know, the species extinction associated with human, uh, you know, the rise of humans in the Industrial Revolution over the last 200 years is a thousand times plus more than a natural rate of extinction would be so we have to be mindful of this stuff and i i'm hopeful that the signs of the challenges that the world is facing is going to drive more action that said you know you also see some people dig in their heels and i i was reading about a um, meteorologist in Iowa who loved living there, who'd moved there a couple of years ago, but he he has quit and he's gone to work for an environmental NGO because uh, people started to give him death threats because they didn't like the nature of what he was saying around climate change and the climate crisis. And they just wanted to shut him down. And he feared for his safety and that of his wife and his child. Mm. And so, you know, I think hopefully, you know, as we talked about countries like Australia, Canada, many European countries are going to help drive some of this change because they see the value and they and they hold those values as being important as part of their national identity. But, um, you know, let's keep our fingers crossed that that's the case because we do need to take action on a number of these issues um, because as standards of living increase across the globe as consumption rates increase there's only so much protein in the swimming around the ocean and that's increasingly being crowded out by floating plastic uh, and so on and so on these are issues that are existential in nature to the to the to humanity and we have to get a handle on it quickly peter i'm partly glad you've only recently arrived in australia because it was about five years ago our Prime Minister uh, at the time brought a lump of coal into Parliament and proudly said, how good is coal? So uh, fortunately, things have shifted a little bit since then, as the party found out at the last election. Um, now, moving on uh, to, I guess, I normally do a, a quick wrap up of three questions. But before I do that, I actually want to ask you um, the question of what, what are we not talking enough about? So specifically as, with respect to your your industry and your work, because I'm sure there's a lot of things that you see are important that aren't in the paper or we're not talking about every day. Well, 
Is there anything you can think of that we're not talking enough about? Well, you know, I think it's, I'm a very, I'm very much a pragmatist, right? And, and stigma and discrimination of all sorts, and particularly, you know, for example, when it comes to harm minimization and whether it's gambling, alcohol, drugs, shopping, you name it, right? The, the, we, most people have something that they're more kind of predisposed to doing in their life. And that may not always be, the, could be eating, right? Uh, whatever. I mean, that's not necessarily the best for them. I think a lot of times we have created this sense of otherness. Oh, that's that person or, oh, they're, you know, they're overweight or they drink too much or they, this, or they, that. And we point the finger at them without realizing ourselves number one that we have something in our life one or more things that we do and i think the more that we reduce stigma and discrimination and i don't think that we talk enough about that i think the better uh, it is for society to do that um and i think what has become apparent as well when we talk about some of these culture wars and virtue signaling and other things is that people are oftentimes afraid of what they don't know. And that's what they, that's when they become more um, divisive when they don't know, you know, I've never met a gay person, but I hate gay people. Or, uh, you know, I uh, have an, uh, a bad attitude about people from a certain cultural background but I've never even met anybody. I've never even had a conversation with them. So, mm. you know, I think the more that we build those bridges of understanding, there's a great program where people can act. You can check a per quote, go to a library and actually quote, check a person out, i.e. sit down with them and they will volunteer and you can go and say, I've never talked to a whatever, I, uh, let's say in, in, in Australian context, an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander person. And you have an opportunity to interact with them. And you'll find Heineken did a great ad campaign about this. People from two very opposite backgrounds and have them talk to each other. And you'll find that you have more in common as, as human beings. You know, we all want love. We all want acceptance. We all want a better life. Uh, we all want to leave the world, I think, for the most part, better than we found it. And I think it's that lack of understanding. And if we spend more time getting to know each other and we spend less time on that stigma and discrimination piece, I think that is a really important thing that we don't do enough of. And I think business plays a role. People play a role. Community leaders play a role. And I think we need to do more of that. Hmm. Very high on, on empathy, I guess, there and, and understanding. Yeah, I mean, it may sound a little woo-woo, I don't know, to people, but, um, you know, it's that lack of, of connection, I think, that in many cases, it's very easy to other somebody else or other group in, in society. And it's that othering, and you've seen that used very successfully by some of these strong men that I've talked about earlier as, as dictators, you know, who are faulting some other group or scapegoating another group unfairly um it it helps create that division that then galvanizes people and i think we need to do less of that we need to create more understanding and in so doing that's how we bring i think more people together it's, mm -hmm. it's easier said than done no question mm -hmm. about it but i strongly believe it's the solution and mm -hmm. uh the world needs more love and understanding 
no question about it. I don't know if I mentioned to you, when I was going through university, I was working as a croupier in Australia's first casino, which was the Rest Point Casino in Hobart. And I, at that time in my life, I was about uh, 20 years old. I really wouldn't have had any comprehension whatsoever of, of gambling harms or the harms of alcohol, like the real harms, like the complexity right. of the issues that, that are here, that people typically don't just have one thing going bad in their life if they have something going bad. There's, there's often a confluence of factors, there's background, um, and there's othering, like we probably have our own stuff going on and we don't admit it. And, and what I also realised was in the in the casino, there was two types of client. There was the happy-go-lucky um, Saturday night, put $50 down and and walk away once I lose it or, or win $100 and go home happy. But then there was the regulars. And mm. um, and I went out to with some friends to the racetrack once and I pretty much saw the same regulars who were always in the casino at the racetrack. And uh, and so it was pretty clear, you know, that I think for a lot of them it was pretty clear there were challenges in their life there. But it's just the complexity of those factors of saying that's that's the bit that you see. That's like the tip of the iceberg. There's probably a lot of other things going on. So as someone who's been in the industry for a long time, what, what's your insights into, I guess, addressing harms in, in gambling and, and uh, addictive behaviours? Well, you know, you're entirely right. It, it can depend on the day of the week, right? And you have to look at the whole person um, because there are a lot of things that might contribute to that environment. And then saying, oh, well, they're weak or they're, you know, they don't have enough self-control is a very simplistic way of, of compartmentalizing that challenge that they may face. And it, again, it can be gambling, it can, it can be cigarettes, it can be drug use, it can be shopping, it can be food, it can be a, a variety of things, right? That, that uh, people say, oh, well, they're weak, or they just need to pull themselves up by the bootstraps. It's not that easy. And there's a, many of these issues also linked to childhood trauma, uh, or, or trauma that's happened in their life before, right? So this is not just a quick fix, but I also believe that irrespective of what the addiction is or the nature of the situation, the more that we create supports, the more that we bring this into the light, the more that we reduce stigma and discrimination, if we push it underground or we try to ban it, like we've, you know, certain jurisdictions have tried to ban gambling or ban alcohol or ban drugs, it doesn't work. Because guess what? People will find a workaround and humans, uh, you know, use these products. So it's better. And even if you think of sexual behavior, uh, same thing. Um, people will do these things. So it's better that we create the conversation, the supports and the networks that allow people to um, find their tribe, find their support, find their resources uh, and talk about it and uh, hopefully address the underlying factors, which in many cases can be complex, then then for us to just sort of turn our back towards them and say, oh, aren't they weak? Or if they would just pull themselves up at the bootstraps, everything would be better. It's certainly not that easy. And um, it's important that whether it's gambling or any other industry as well, that there is a focus that on harm minimization, the organizations behind it, 
take those things seriously, and they haven't um, across a range of industries. And it's um, uh, I think there's an expectation increasingly that that happened. And if the organizations don't do that themselves, they're going to be legislated into that. And we've seen various levels of that happen mm-hmm. across various products. And so the more that people get in front of that, the better I think it's going to be for everybody. Mm. It's a huge topic, and uh, we've covered a, a lot of topics today, Peter. I apologize for covering so much ground. No, no um, worries. We can come back for another five hours and finish them off. Um, okay, <laughs> my uh, wrap up three questions, um, quick fire answers, uh, if possible. What contributes to your sense of purpose, or what does purpose mean to you? Um, well, purpose to me is creating community and creating confidence. And so community is something that I'm very passionate about is, you know, linking people together and finding my own tribe. You know, here I am new to Australia as well. And I'm, I'm reaching out and trying to build that because I think that that community piece is important. We all want to feel like we belong. And when we have that, it gives us the confidence to act on the things that we think is important. So I, I would say community and confidence. And then I also really try to do things with generosity. So giving more than I can take back and curiosity, Um, just asking questions and not always being there with an opinion, but just being open-minded, right? And that links back to some of the points that I made earlier. I'm not perfect. I have all, all the flaws that you can imagine, but I at least try to keep these things you know, top of mind. Um, and I do fall off the the straight and narrow from time to time, but I, I do have a, a strong sense of where I want to go. Mm. Great. And uh, this might link into your answer. I mean, you are, I think you are good at creating community from what you were saying. You've only been here a couple of weeks, really. And you've, you sound like you're moving in, in several circles and finding your, your niche already. Um, what, what are you looking forward to from here in particular in your professional or, or personal life? Um, you know, I'm really curious about the Australian, in this case, the Australian experience, um, you know, what are the values, uh, and I'm getting more and deeper into that. What are the values of mateship, for example, which is an interesting Australian, uh, value, right? Like, of, of, for lack of a better word, that, that sense of personhood of, of, uh, helping your neighbor of, uh, uh, of creating that sense of community. So learning more about those things and learning also about what is the experience of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders as compared to the Indigenous people of Canada. How does that differ? So I I love to ask questions and just learn more. Uh, so that's something I'm really looking forward to. And then I'm looking forward to exploring like Australia. It's a beautiful country. The quality of life here is amazing. And so from a purely selfish point of view, I want to see a, a lot more. <laughs> so Yeah. And what, one of the lowest people densities in, in the world in terms of, uh, was it people per square kilometer? Yeah, we, there's, there's a lot well, of it out yeah. there. A lot of it out there to find. Canada's um, up there too. So it would be up I, there, yeah. I come from one country to another one that's in a similar boat. I, I want to go to, I think it's Hudson Bay, where they have these enormous tidal, tidal surges and things like that. I think that uh, would, would blow my mind. I'm, I want to get there one day. Um, last question. What advice would you give your younger self about living a meaningful life? Again, this could be personal or professional. But what, what do you know now that you think maybe you didn't know back then? 
You know, I think it really comes down to knowing your values and what's important to you um, and uh, establishing that early on. And even if your personal purpose is going to change over time, um, having that sort of that guiding light, that that sense of, uh, you know, of, of, of a rudder, if you will, that helps to guide you and helps you make decisions. Um, you know, I've had that to varying degrees in my earlier days, but I wish I had that stronger sense from the very beginning because that would allow, that would, you know, th that allows you to navigate uh, different situations and make choices um, with that sense of clarity. And I think when you're younger, you know, especially as a male, you, you tend to be thinking that you're a bit invincible and, you know, you've got nine lives and you can do whatever you want. Um, especially if you're a white male, uh, which I am. And so, uh, you know, I think everybody benefits from knowing what their personal purpose and their contribution is right from a, from an early, early as possible age. And I don't think the educational system does enough actually to support people to create that clarity. Mm. Um, rote learning is not where it's at. I think it really is about discovering who you are and what could your contribution be in the world. Mm. And uh, on that point, some employers taking some steps in that direction to help their employees along that uh, journey too. So that's a, a topic for another time as well. But um, for now, Peter, it's been fascinating finding out about your career and life trajectory because it's traversed a fairly big arc there. And um, I hope it goes well here. And thanks for sharing your story with us on The Purpose Edge. Thanks very much for having me on, Phil. Well, there we have it, a great discussion with Peter there. And I loved, well, cheekily loved his quote saying that living in Canada is like living above a meth lab, being the United States. And the industry he's in clearly has challenges associated with it. And then the question is, well, do you want people in there who really know their stuff or not? And Peter really knows his stuff. And he's operated in that industry to best practice in Canada for a lot of his working life as well. Three things that I guess stood out for me in particular was one, when you're coming into that type of role in, I guess, any industry though, every industry has various challenges that will be environmental or social in their nature. So he starts by looking at a baseline, um, taking a view of where is that company or organization at right now, and then compare it to what best practice looks like globally. And then that helps in understanding what the gap is. And also from a diversity and inclusion perspective, his real aim is, or the company's aim, is wanting everyone to be able to show up as themselves, and I like that. Point number two, the complexity of social challenges we talked about for a little bit, and you've got to look at the whole person, and weakness or lack of self-control might be too simplistic a lens to be viewing this through. Many issues are linked to trauma, and better supports need to be created. You want it uh, above the table not under the table and companies have to take this seriously or risk being regulated further and number three from a personal purpose perspective it means bringing community together building confidence in communities and linking people together and finding his tribe and i like that peter talked about being generous and being curious and that quality of being curious has come up many times in our various episodes if you've listened to more than one you would have heard that theme come up You'll find a link to his LinkedIn profile in the show notes, as well as my contact details, should you wish to get in touch. I'm Phil Preston, and thanks for joining me for another episode of The Purpose Edge. Purpose Edge.